All right, today on the Righteous Remnant Podcast, we have June Lee, who is the education pastor at um, GMI, Grace Ministries International in Fullerton, California. And June is a is a friend of mine. We go back now, what, seven, eight years or something like that, um, when I first moved to Southern California. June called me up out of the blue and said, hey, I'm a local pastor. I heard you're starting to pastor down here, and I'd love it if you just came and had coffee with me and some of the other pastors. And June, I just want to say I really appreciated that, and I've appreciated um, your heart and your ministry. And, you know, I... I, I feel like I say this a little too often, but I really love GMI. I love, obviously, your senior pastor. I love your guys' ministry in your heart. Um, you guys have planted like 10,000 churches all around the world, something that I, I deeply respect and honor. So I just want to say thanks so much for coming on and um, agreeing to have this discussion here. Well, Dennis, uh, it's been great to know you as well. I really appreciate uh, your heart uh, for the Lord and his people. And uh, yeah, I love GMI too. <laughs> you know, uh, it's even better uh, from the inside, just an incredible uh, man of God who lead this church. And uh, I'm just uh, uh, eternally uh, grateful uh, for the people that uh, God has privileged me to serve under. And so, yeah, uh, love, uh, thank you for having me here. All right. So um, today we wanted to talk a little bit about kind of the intersection of Christianity and politics. And that's a pretty common theme here on the podcast. Um, June, I feel like what it seems, what I've heard about you is that you seem to fit in a, uh, a, a, a lane that is pretty common that I see in many Korean American pastors. And um, this isn't me trying to typecast you. It's just to try and give uh, an understanding of where you're at. And you can you can fully flesh out where you're at. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like I, I just say I feel like I talk to lots of Korean American pastors who kind of feel like they're more in the middle between republicanism and democratism, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like they don't feel super comfortable really fully identifying with either party, and they just feel like, hey, you know, I'm more in the middle. I agree with Republicans on some things. I agree with the Democrats on some things, and um, you know, on on some level, I I totally understand that. On some level, I totally understand that, and I respect that. I don't think that we should be as Christians allied with a particular, you know, political party, um, you know, just in general, right? I feel like, um, you know, I, I feel like our citizenship is in heaven primarily, mm-hmm. and um, we're only secondarily American citizens, something like that. So we have a greater allegiance. I think both you and I are agreed on that. I think we're agreed on some of these major moral issues like abortion, right, like the LGBTQ issues and things like this. So I would guess that we, we're we probably agreed on some of the, the major, major issues in this intersection of faith and politics. And so, you know, before we get into some of our disagreements, just want to explore a little bit of those agreements, you know, to start with. And um, one of the things that you had mentioned to me is that you see progressive Christianity as being um, as being particularly dangerous. Could you flesh that out a little bit? What do you mean by progressive Christianity? Why do you think it's so dangerous? Well, progressive Christianity, of course, um, a lot of that has roots uh, from Germany and some of the European mo- movements, right? And uh, uh, I would even argue um, that a lot of it really comes from the Age of Enlightenment uh, from Europe, where everything was submerged under reason and so then when you would look at scripture and then you'd see jesus doing miracles like 
you know, literally people would cross out those parts of the Bible because we think, oh, 2000 years ago, I guess back then it was less time than that. But like, oh, people were dumb and they were primitive. And so they actually believed in this stuff. Uh, and I think we vastly underestimate the intelligence of people from prior ages. <laughs> I mean, sure. we stand yeah. on, you know, all the advancements that time has allowed. And so I think I could trace that back there. And so anything from the scripture that sounded kind of like, oh, that sounds so dumb. We don't believe in that stuff anymore. And they started to draw that out. And so uh, ultimately here in the States, of course, uh, a lot of that movement happened, uh, you know, 100 plus years ago. Um, you know, Princeton, all of these uh, uh, places, right? And uh, ultimately, I feel like what they have done uh, is uh, they have perverted uh, the gospel um, where it's really just become uh, the here and now without the eternal perspective. And um, I actually know a lot of progressive Christians and um, I would, you know, I, I know they don't like hearing me say this, but I would question, I mean, if that is Christianity at all. Uh, if, sorry about the audio feedback. Um, it's okay. Uh, but um, because, um, for example, let me give you an example. Uh, some of them don't believe in the virgin birth. Right. Uh, because that sounds ridiculous, right? Um, but, um, and I would say, well, on those grounds, you're not a Christian. <laughs> and they're like, well, who are you to decide? And I'm like, well, Christianity does not happen in a vacuum. It started to, it's a 2000 year old tradition. And back when the Nicene Creed uh, was made in the Council of Nicaea or the Apostles' Creed, I guess is more famous, you know, but uh, those happened as a result of Christianity becoming a global movement. And these main Christian leaders all across the globe decided to get together and say, you know what, man, even the way we do church looks so different, but like, what are the things that all Christians must agree on? to be considered a Christian and everything else could be secondary and there could be disagreements. And, and virgin birth, of course, is one of the pillars of that. And so, um, so it, it's really a slippery slope and they really typecast Jesus. They use the word radical compassion a lot. That's what Jesus was. And he was, you know, and then that's all we are supposed to do now. And then let's forget about all the inconvenient stuff Jesus said, because he talked about hell more than anyone else, you know, and judgment right. and these things. And so you really kind of make Jesus into this uh, fluffy character. And so, um, yeah, so I, I, um, I speak out against that um, to a degree, I think to our young people because so that they don't get swept up in that movement. Um, but some of them have this perception that I critique more the evangelical right and their political stances more. And part of the reason why I do that is because I believe that those are my Christian brothers and there's this hand of fellowship and some common core sure. of fundamental beliefs that we share. Whereas for the liberal progressive Christians, like I don't really consider them my Christian brothers and sisters. It's morphed into something else. So it's kind of hard for me to critique that too much in the sense of like, well, that's not Christian, you know, yeah. so. Yeah, I totally understand. And I, and I totally agree. I think the terminology that I tend to use for what I hear you describing is, is humanistic, right? Like, absolutely. Like it's, um, I, I see humanism as a worldview, as a religion, right? And humanism is basically the idea that humans don't need to worship a higher power or higher being and, you know, these, these beings don't exist. And so 
you know, from that perspective, you you pull all the supernatural stuff out of the Bible. You pull all the absolute right and wrong, right, and judgment. You pull all that out of the Bible because ultimately right and wrong is determined by humans, right? Humans, it's a social construct. We we determine what's right or wrong, right, in, in various mm-hmm. areas and things like that. And so, yeah, I, I, I tend to see that as humanism, as a different religion. And, and I think, you know, the way that you're drawing those lines, I, I would agree with that, right? I think the big one for me is the resurrection of Christ, right? Because Scripture is very explicit about that, right? First Corinthians 15, um, you know, if you don't believe that he's resurrected, then, you know, your faith is useless, right? It's bankrupt, because yeah. we have to believe that we're going to be resurrected, right? Yes. And, um, and so, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. I think uh, we have a, a lot of agreement um, on this particular issue. Now, here's where, for to me, when I look at, um, you know, however we want to describe this, the social justice movement, the, um, you know, wokeism, when I look at it, I see it as being humanistic, right? Drawing from yes. the same set of assumptions and being influenced by the same ideology, essentially. Mm. Yes. Do you feel like that's true, or do you feel like this is, is something different? Um, it's uh, both and, I guess. Like, there is truth to that. So what we see from uh, Christian history, especially American Christian history, where, um, you know, a lot of the social gospel movements have morphed into what we see in the mainline denominations, right? Mm-hmm. And like you mentioned, I, I know for most of us who grew up in the evangelical church, we don't even, like interact with these people so we don't even know this exists but so much of the mainline denominations whether it be the umc or the pc uh usa uh, episcopalian churches like a lot of people don't believe in the resurrection they believe that the idea is the moral story is what's important and then they just take out the reality of the event so i do see that a lot of these social gospel movements have morphed into something that's not christianity at all Mm -hmm. and so i do believe that it's extremely important for us to keep the gospel uh, as it is the eternal gospel that we have been given but i also feel that uh there's obviously because um we have distorted christianity uh which every culture does to a degree uh by our cultural values and we live in a society that's so highly individualistic that when we think of sin, when we think of um, moral behavior, we think of it from an individual lens and not always a social lens. But when we see throughout the scripture, all throughout the Old Testament, I see a common strand of two things that God continues to rebuke the Israelites, the people of God for. And the first one is idol worship. And the second one is social injustice. And so when uh, in the Jerusalem Council in the New Testament, when Apostle Paul meets Peter and John, right? Because they want to know, is this Paul preaching the right gospel? And so Paul comes and presents it. And then one of the things that he's, uh, Peter says to Paul is that to make sure that um, they uh, take care of the poor. And Paul says in his letter that that was the very thing that he was eager to do. Mm-hmm. So I think it's actually very possible to keep the gospel and not change it while being very passionate about the social issues that we see from the early church. So right. one of the experiences that I see with the millennials, with the younger generation, which I think is positive, uh, is that they have this thrust and a heart for it. And one of the things, for example, would be like uh, sex trafficking, you know, and them fighting against it. And I think, um, I think that's great. You know, uh, I think that's a wonderful thing, and I'm sure you would agree to that. So I think that um, 
you're right. There's a lot of humanistic elements to these social justice movements. I am not for BLM, you know, these kinds of things. Um, but at the same time, I think Christians can carry on uh, what would look externally very similar things in terms of carrying out social justice, but do that with God's heart and perspective and with that eternal gospel intact. Yeah, well, I, I think I agree with almost everything you said there. Um, mm -hmm. I don't hear anything, you know, in 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 that whole statement that I would disagree with. Like, I think, um, yeah, the gospel um, is good news for the poor. There is um, a mandate given to the church to care for the poor, and that that is what creates large open doors for people to receive the good news about Christ, right? Yes. So it is essential that the church um, be concerned with caring for the poor. I think the only, you know, the, the area where there tends to be differences between Republicans and Democrats is the means by which we care for the poor, sure. right? And so in, um, you know, in democratic philosophy, more left-leaning philosophy, it's going to be the government is the tool that we have to utilize to effectively care for the poor. And more conservatives are going to say, no, the government is, is not the tool. We should not be utilizing the government to care for the poor. We should be doing it ourselves, something like mm -hmm. that. Yeah. I mean, would you agree with that basic characterization? Yeah, the differences between the two parties. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. would largely agree with that. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so I guess my follow-up question to that would be: What is what is the government's role in caring for the poor? What should be the government's role? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, I can't. Um, I can tell you my opinion, but I can't like hold to it. Like, oh, this is definitely the blueprint for it. Sure. I do believe that the government should play some role. Uh, I think uh, when we see certain societies, I know universal health care is something that's a very contentious issue in America where it really isn't in almost any um, first world countries. I mean, that's all there. And I think most people would agree. Yeah, no matter how, um, you know, um, lazy this homeless person was. At the end of the day, if he had, you know, a stroke, it would be the right thing to do to help him, you know, even sure. if he adult doesn't have means to pay for it. Right. So I I, um, I mean, I could go back to uh, something that happened in the Clinton era, right, where Clinton was a moderate Democrat, at least in the first term of his presidency before the Lewinsky scandal. And he had to side with his uh, loyalists. But mm -hmm. um, but it was a Republican controlled uh, Congress. And the Republicans actually wanted to reform welfare. And Clinton actually signed off on that. And I think it was a very needed welfare where people were taking advantage of that system, right? And so uh, now, I mean, should the government offer something like um, unemployment benefits, you know? Um, I think there's a good reason for it now. Do people uh, take advantage of that? Of course they do. And so, I mean, there's a lot of nuances to that issue, but um, I think sometimes we kind of cherry pick where the government should involve themselves and not and and end up kind of uh, um, almost we conflict our it, it's like self-conflicting when we say well we want limited government then we want government to involve themselves with this and that and so forth but at the end of the day the, the way I feel it is of course the church should absolutely do these things but if the government helps in that regard actually I think that's a, a benefit if kind of yeah. a broader understanding, I guess. Yeah, I understand. Mm -hmm. um, so here's, you know, my my basic perspective as a conservative, right? And I see this as being part of our American heritage, right? And you, you mentioned it, the idea of limited government. I feel like limited government is, is the, the core philosophy of our nation, right? Mm -hmm. And yes. it was for, for a very specific reason, because 
we were birthed out of European feudalism, right? And we rebelled against that. Like we, we revolted against that. Yes. And the idea of universe uh, of European feudalism was people need lords, right? That was the idea. The peasants need lords because they're uneducated. They are barbaric. If they don't have nobles who will rule over them, they will, you know, they will cause mayhem, right? And so that was the whole idea of the American experiment in the early portion of our country. Can, you know, equals, men who are considered equals without lords, can they actually rule themselves? Can they govern themselves? And, um, and the, you know, the default answer in Europe was, of course they can't, right? There's no way they can do it, right? You have to give these people power. Um, you have to give nobles power. You have to have nobility because they need to take care of these, of the common man something like that. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of the American experiment was that, no, all we need is a robust religion. Okay. All we need is a vibrant Christianity and then men can govern themselves. And in fact, um, the, the rhetoric that governments use to say that we need power so that we can help you is the propaganda that tyrants have used since the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. And, they say that they're going to use their power and money to help, but in fact, it always becomes tyrannical. It always becomes oppressive. And so the best thing to do is to limit the power of the government and put the power in the hands of the people. And that actually will result in the greatest common good. Okay, so this is the, yeah. the founding philosophy of governance. And I see where we've come now. Today, something like two-thirds of our federal budget is socialism at this point. Right, we're using about two thirds of our federal budget for social work, social programs to help the poor and things like that. So, you know, when people, you know, say, "I just want a, a social, I just want a socialistic democracy like Europe," I'm like, "That's what we have right now, right? We have a very socialistic government." Um, it, but the problem with socialism is that the the prescription is always more socialism, right? How do we fix this problem, in society? Well, we need more socialism. We need the government to have more power, more money, more taxes. And um, I tend to think that socialism is always counterproductive, right? Um, that the government should not be in charge of helping people. People should be in charge of helping people, right? And that's that's a conservative political philosophy. But I believe that that philosophy was birthed in wisdom out of moves of God, specifically speaking of the first great awakening, right? The first great awakening was really the spiritual movement that led to the American Revolution. And the American Revolution was really the tipping point that, um, you know, became the end of feudalism all around the world, right? Um, we had the French copy of the American Revolution, um, but thereafter, many different societies started to embrace constitutional um, democracies based on the success of the American Revolution and the American constitutional framework. And so the reason why I'm saying that, all this, you know, forgive the, the, the mini history lesson, mm -hmm. but the reason why I'm saying all this is because <laughs> my sense is for us to embrace socialism, which is the idea that we need to give the government power and money in order to create equality in society. I feel like it is a betrayal of the founding values of America that have resulted in the most prosperous, most free society in the history of the world that has brought this prosperity and freedom to many countries all around the world. And I don't believe that it is perfect 
Okay, I, I don't think it's perfect, but I do think it is greater wisdom than you know the ideas of Karl Marx and various others who have come along later and said, no, we need to give the government power and more money to create an equitable society. So that's my basic idea here. Now, let's get into some of the, the specifics here because it's, it's hard to avoid specifics okay. when we're talking about this because how does this actually work in practice? So if we're taking a, sure. a, a thing like universal health care, yeah. the pattern that I see with socialism is that it, it is marginally helpful at the beginning. Okay, so this is true like in Venezuela, for example, right? In Venezuela, they were a very rich nation and they nationalized their oil industry, right? Yes. Yes. And for a while, that was marginally helpful for everyone because mm -hmm. you took all that oil money and you're basically handing it out in various government programs and policies. And so people are, experience, are experiencing the benefit of nationalizing. And for those who don't know what that term means, it just means the government takes ownership of the oil industry. So you don't have private oil companies in Venezuela anymore. Now the government owns them all and the government can then disperse the profits to the rest of the nation and things like this. Right. And so it's always social is very politically popular because the idea is always, hey, I'm going to take money from these rich people, these rich corporations, and then we're going to share it amongst all the people. And so you know, that is marginally helpful for people right at the beginning, but what it does is it destroys your economy because it, it destroys all the incentives for sure. profit and competition sure. and all this kind of stuff. I yeah. feel like universal healthcare works the exact same way. So when we, when, if we were to have universal healthcare right now, well, it would be nice at first, right? Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, we have, you know, everybody who needs medical care gets it quote unquote for free. The problem is it will destroy all the incentives in the marketplace. So for example, 80% of new drugs are developed here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that's precisely because of profit, because sure. these companies can make profit, right? Yeah. New medical technologies, the vast majority of them are developed in the United States. And mm -hmm. so we have all of these socialized healthcare um, countries around the world, but for the most part, they're not developing new medicines. What they're doing is they're taking American medical technologies and then they're, you know, commoditizing and they're, you know, they're packaging them and using them in their healthcare, but they're not developing them because this is the nature of socialism that socialism, it, it stops progress, right? You yeah. share everything, but it, it's going to stop your engine of economy that's going to cause growth. Yes. So, um, you know, as far as wealth goes, it's, there's no question that capitalism has contributed a lot more to wealth than socialism, communism. Um, I think, uh, <laughs> but when you use Venezuela as an example, you're giving an example of a country where socialism has absolutely destroyed the nation, right? It's like one of the worst examples, uh, modern times. Whereas if you look at some of the Western European nations, obviously they're very prosperous nations that have some level of democratic socialism. Now, having said that, um, so, even though capitalism, uh, you know, even just from Adam Smith and Wealth of Nations, he essentially explained what's the driving engine behind capitalism, which is um, individual gain. Mm -hmm. So as people are motivated uh, selfishly, uh, ultimately what, will, what that will do is that that will actually be good for all because, I mean, you know, when people make new products and there's innovation obviously that's generally helpful for the entire economy mm -hmm. obviously i think um where uh socialism and particularly the kind of marxist communism comes in 
is the idea was, you know what, we want everyone to be equal, right? And like everyone to be wealthy, but what ends up happening is that everyone becomes poor except the ruling elite. And so, I mean, I think we have enough examples to see that, okay, communism just doesn't work because you really um, take out the incentive, as you mentioned, of why should I even work hard, right? Because you're going to make the same. I mean, in Cuba, right, like the hotel bellboys were making more than doctors because they were getting tips once, uh, you know, the, you know, tourists could come, right? So, so, so I think we agree on that. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. Um, we're, we're, we're Christians. We're pastors. We understand sin and, and its power and its impulse. And I think one of the most characterizing part of sin is uh, absorption with self. And so part of the reason why capitalism works well is because when we're motivated by selfish reasons, that's an extremely powerful engine. Mm-hmm. So in a capitalistic society, you can't. Uh, and, and I do understand the merits of limited government, by the way. I'm not like, um, you know, totally sure. socialistic. I, I think there are merits to it, especially free market economy and those kinds of things. But when it's driven by so much of individualism and selfishness, uh, you really do have to kind of like we have checks and balances in the government. You do have to legislate things to prevent people from really kind of uh, taking advantage of others, right? So uh, you might remember uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, how they deregulated energy, right, in California, and that resulted in all these rolling blackouts and so forth, right? Why? Because we know that, especially in an industry like that, uh, where energy, right, it's not like, uh, you know, people are selling pens or things that they, you know, it, it's going to be limited, it's going to be an oligarchy, right? It's going to be limited to two, three, four companies. And what do they do? They decide, well, hey, we're going to take advantage of people uh, because we could do a little handshake agreement amongst us to just jack up prices, which is what they did. Uh, what industry has consistently the worst uh, customer service uh, or um, customer uh, satisfaction rate um, is uh, the cell phone industry because you're limited to like three or four and they're gonna or internet services and they're gonna jack the customers and so that's why uh, Edison that's why Pacific Gas and elect- uh, Pacific Gas uh, the government intervenes they can't just raise prices the government has to put a cap on it right and they can't just do that on their own and so uh I think uh, there's a lot of dangers to capitalism as well. I'm not saying let's go socialist, but what I'm saying is let's also see it for what it is. It's not a Christian form of doing anything. In fact, it really is driven by this selfish impulse of man. And then um, uh, and, and we see uh, the, uh, the fruits of that. So here in the States, the richest 1% of America owns almost 40% of all of our wealth. The richest 5% owns about two thirds. And the uh, and so we don't bat an eye with these things because we think, oh, we're America, we're number one. And so like we don't really have a, a very good um, self-reflection as a society. We feel like we're above that. So then like the bottom 90% of America owns about 20%. And so when I look at some of the scriptural things, uh, and again, I'm not saying like, oh yeah, lazy people should have just as much money as, you know, uh, diligent people. I'm not saying that, of course. But when I look at how God would call out uh, Israel for uh, their injustices, 
against the poor, I do have to wonder if there is a lot of correlation in our society as well. And remember, just even from the Old Testament, God would say, hey, from the fields, like, don't glean again, right? Don't, don't because that's for the poor. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I just think that, um, uh, you know, again, I'm not some socialist all about wealth redistribution yeah. or anything like that. But I do think that we have a very extreme capitalism that has created a very unhealthy society in many ways. Uh, and uh, I think uh, it's okay for us to critique that from a Christian perspective. And, and uh, okay. I'm, I'm not a gung-ho capitalist yeah, because yeah, of I that. Hear you. Mm -hmm. I hear you. Um, so let me respond to some of those things because my, I, I see things you know pretty differently on some of mm -hmm. those points that you mentioned. Meaning mm -hmm. I, I see problems when you're getting like things like oligarchies right, which is just a couple companies that control the entire industry, right, or monopolies and things like that. Yeah. I see government as having a legitimate role in busting monopolies, right, mm -hmm. or collusion between oligarchies, sure. right? Sure. So I think that's a legitimate role of government. But the question is, why do those um, monopolies and things like that come about in the first place? Usually, from my perspective, it's precisely because of socialism. So if we look at things like um, internet, right, well, what happened was these local governments awarded monopolies to various companies to get them to incentivize them to, you know, lay the framework, you know, for installing fiber optic cable and stuff like that. That's how we develop a lot of these um, these situations where you have a couple companies controlling everything. That's actually not because of capitalism. The beauty of capitalism is that when you have a company that is, you know, making a ton of money, well the way it's supposed to work is, hey, you copy the product, right? You make something very similar, and then you sell it for a little bit cheaper. And what happens? You start to steal their business. And that hap that should happen all the time, meaning entrepreneurism, the, the ability to start new businesses is how capitalism is supposed to function, and it, it is supposed to redistribute the wealth so that these companies are constantly in competition. But it's socialism that kills entrepreneurism, right? Like, Personally, I'll just say this. There, I went through a period in my 20s where I wanted to start a number of businesses, where I was talking with entrepreneurs constantly. And I'll tell you, it's it's government regulations and hurdles that make it so difficult to start a new business. Right? If you want to start a new business, you have to hire a lawyer because almost every industry has such a complex legal code to dealing with it complex regulations, then you have to have a lot of capital because you can't hire people for what they're actually worth. You have to worry about lawsuits and all sorts of ridiculous hurdles to entrepreneurialism. It's the opposite in places like China, right? You go to China, you start a company, like where they have a little people, they don't care about IP laws, they don't care about anything, right? And that's why in China, their economy is growing at something like 7% every year, precisely because everyone's starting new companies all the time over because there's almost no serious regulation of their economy. Now, to be clear, I'm not arguing for zero regulation. I yeah. do think there is a place for the government to specifically bust monopolies. I think they should be busting up companies like Facebook. I think they should be busting up companies like Amazon, right, that are effectively monopolies in a lot of these industries. Question, why aren't they? Because they have significant political power now on the Democratic side, in my opinion, right? And that's why this crony capitalism, it always gets, you know, pegged as that, but it's a function of socialism. 
in my opinion. If we have pure market capitalism, what we have is a robust, competitive marketplace where new entrepreneurs are constantly challenging these type of monopolies. And that's that's my issue. People are often talking about, hey, we need more regulation. We need more government regulation because these companies are taking advantage of people. And my answer to that is, no, no, we need less regulation. Because if we have less regulation, then I will start a company that will compete with these behemoths and I will start to steal away some of their business. And this is this is the problem. When we, the more regulation we put in, the harder it is to start new companies to compete. Like who can compete with Amazon at this point? Right. There's such a beast, right? That's why I think yeah. they should be broken up. The government should be breaking up these super companies, right? And I would say that that is pretty well recognized on the right. On the right, we want to bust these monopolies. We do not like this type of hegemonic power they have in these various industries. And so when you're talking about the 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 income distribution and how it's gotten increasingly wide i see that as a function of socialism right like i i hate how we've got these you know incredible you know th these people with incredible wealth the nature of wealth is that your wealth should always be be useful to the common market so if you're you're if you're ultra rich or something like that Generally speaking, you're not like Scrooge McDuck. You, you don't build like this huge bank and you put all your gold coins in it. And nobody can touch it. That's not how it works, right? You have your money in banks. And what's ha what are the banks doing with it? Well, they're loaning all that money. Sure, sure. They're loaning mm -hmm. all that money. And so my point is the system, the capitalist system is already set up mm -hmm. to utilize the wealth of wealthy individuals, right, to create more wealth for other people if entrepreneurism is encouraged. If it's not, if there are all these regulations and hurdles, then what happens is the money gets gummed up in in terms of the hands of these these wealthy people. So I will say this is this is you know this is what Adam Smith talked about this invisible hand that will naturally redistribute the resources, right? Will naturally do this, but that only functions if entrepreneurism can work like it's supposed to work. Well, I mean, um, first of all. Um, I, I will kind of quibble with the point about like oligarchies and so forth. I think uh, most oligarchies happen because uh, it's the type of industry where like it just takes so much capital. It just doesn't make sense to have so many. For example, like railroads, like, I mean, how many railroads are we going to build? So even internet and just all the lines and, and, and connecting the whole nation is kind of like, okay, we don't want a thousand of those. We can't have those. So, so industry wise, it just makes, I think it's more of a function of the type of industry it is where it, it just naturally is just a very limiting thing, like drilling oil. Like, I mean, honestly, like just all the material it costs to actually do it and having the expertise and so forth. So just, just a small quibble on that. Uh, as far as like, um, sorry, I, I, I realized I didn't, answer your question last time about the healthcare so and such again i think sometimes like we should learn from other nations instead of thinking that we always have the best because our healthcare system i mean just by you know i i mean i don't know i'm not an expert but by and large is ranked somewhere between number 30 and 40 in the world now um so i think when we have universal healthcare, again, it's just more out of a function of like, okay, like, yeah, even if someone cannot pay for something, if it's a life-threatening thing, we should do something about it. So I think it makes sense to have a universal healthcare that is not like some over-the-top 
uh, incredible like you know coverage, but a basic coverage for everyone. And then if people want health insurance on top of that, which I think a lot of people would, then it could work something along those systems. Now, having said that, uh, coming back to all the economy stuff and, and, and whatnot, um, you know, again, I, I mean, I'm not a big fan of Amazon um, <laughs> because of what's going on. Um, but then again, I mean, I don't see a huge difference between Amazon and say Walmart, right? Uh, and Walmart, obviously we know is a very conservative uh, Sam Alton and, and so forth. And when Walmart comes into small towns, they really essentially end up destroying mom and pop stores. Uh, which is why like a city like Inglewood, right? Decided, no, Walmart's not coming into our city, right? So, um, I mean, it's great for the consumers because you could to buy for as much cheaper, uh, right? And so forth. So. I mean, there's, it's on both sides of the spectrum. Um, I think if uh, wealth redistribution was naturally happening, you know, the so-called trickle-down economy and so forth, then what we would see is, I think, a little bit more of uh, more even distribution of wealth. And again, I'm not saying the goal is not an even distribution of wealth. I think it makes sense for people to be in different income brackets. But having said that, uh, we're seeing an increasing polarization where the wealthy are continuing to get richer in America uh, and, and the slice of the pie is getting smaller and smaller for the vast majority of people. And so I, I'm not so sure that that's what's going on. I do agree in a lot of ways in terms of like um, limited government in a free market economy, limited regulations and so forth. But I think a lot of these regulations are, uh, have come about not because the government was twiddling their fingers and they thought, oh, it would be a great idea to add some regulations, but because within the free market context uh, and people being driven by their own greed, where they would um, uh, crowd out, or, or I mean, they would do things that may not be unethical or, or so forth. And then, so then it just kind of happened that way. Now, I'm not saying regulations are necessarily good, but a lot of these things have been borne out because when you have a capitalism system that ultimately is driven by human greed, well, you're going to get a lot of simple things happening within that market. And so, I, you know, again, I'm not against capitalism yeah. per se. Yeah, I, I just, I just think that we should be very sober minded as Christians to understand this is not a Christian system either. I mean, it's just a, the kind of system that we're in that we're kind of participating. But I think as Christians that we uh, learn to, um, differentiate ourselves from the world in terms of how we use our finances, how we honor God in our finances. But what we actually see is that how capitalism, it doesn't have to do this, but we see um, the effects, the dangerous effects of um, capitalism come upon the church in the form of, I think, a lot of consumerism, a lot of materialism. Uh, and again, I'm not saying capitalism must either point to those things but I see that constantly in the church where, you know, people are very consumeristic. It's all about me. It's all about what I get. People are extremely materialistic, honestly. I mean, you know, I, I love our church and I, I love, I have love for Korean American Christians, but like, honestly, like, do we really need our parking lots to always be, um, you know, populated by Mercedes, Lexus is like, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how Christians are all that different from the world in terms of even our view of money and how we use it. Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, we have a lot to talk about there. Mm -hmm. I I would simply say, just to, to finish up this particular topic, 
I don't see any of those things as products of capitalism. Capitalism is just the government should stay out of the market, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning the mm -hmm. selfishness of people is going to, you know, is going to manifest in whatever economic system you're in. And the idea, the idea of the capitalism is that it's better. It's better that the government not get involved because the government is the, is the bully, right? The government has all the guns. So the problem is when the government has power in the marketplace, then what happens is people's selfishness all transfers to government, and then you get a system where um, the government is is you know the referee and the participant in the marketplace, mm -hmm. right? And that's yeah. the danger, right? That's that's why you know capitalists like me hate socialism because what it's doing is it's getting the government involved in the marketplace, and all of the corruption then floats into the government. And it's all intermeshed with the marketplace. I want the government out of the marketplace, right? Because then it's it, the government's job is to keep a fair marketplace, right? Where we're able to compete, right? And is there going to be unethical practice? For sure. Well, that's why we have the FBI and police, right? Who are making sure people play by the rules and things like that, right? That's that's the goal. So I don't I don't want to get you know bogged down yeah, yeah. our whole discussion in a in a mm -hmm. question you know over you know socialism and stuff like that because i think mm -hmm. both you and i this is more of a side thing for us we care much more about the kingdom and how you know how these things are really affecting the kingdom and things like that and so what i wanted to do is get into a little bit of conversation about you know when it comes to socialistic philosophy that's kind of one thing but um for me right now i i feel like abortion is such a big issue that i cannot understand um well i can understand a little bit but i cannot agree with believers who are voting democrat right now just if it's just because of abortion i understand there are other issues too but that's how big of a deal i feel like abortion is would you agree with that or do you have a different perspective um i agree with that on a personal level uh i had not voted democrat um I have voted Republican a few times, and a lot of times I have, uh, you know, refrained from voting. Um, kind of like the whole John Piper thing, right? Where he said, I can't vote for Trump, but based on abortion, I will never vote Democrat. That's kind of what he said. Mm -hmm. I mean, if there was a Democrat who was pro-life, pro I mean, certainly I think we would consider. Um, so I do believe uh, that um, I feel very strongly about abortion. I believe that... Um, our country and the world will come under just judgment of God. I think it's too late at this point after shedding, you know, that many lives. Uh, so, so I do um, agree with that from a heart and a spiritual level. I don't totally agree with that from a political level because um, there are other issues that are very valid. And whether we had a Republican president or a Democratic president, the reality is that overturning Roe v. Wade is going to be a, a Herculean task to say the very least. I almost feel like when you open that Pandora's box, like you can't put it back in the sense of like, well, you let women have abortion for six decades and now we're going to tell them now you can't. Um, it's going to be a very difficult thing to do as a society. For sure. uh, and not to say that we shouldn't fight it. I'm not saying let's adopt a defeatist mentality. But you know what I was surprised by then? This was, um, uh, I think it was a year ago. It may be two years ago. Uh, but Ireland, you know, a staunchly Catholic uh, country, 
uh, abortion was banned up until about two years ago. I had no idea. I, I had no idea a Western European country that was a you know that 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 had that. Mm -hmm. And so what would they do? Uh, they just all flew to you know uh, Great Britain, uh, England, or you know a neighboring country to get abortion. And uh, so I, I would assume that if somehow we were able to do it, that a lot of people would probably just go to Canada or Mexico to get an abortion. Now, again, I'm not saying um, that wouldn't reduce the number of abortions if we were somehow to legislate it. But because I also recognize, like, like for example, um, I believe that uh, we should have very strong gun, gun control. Um, but I also understand America, you know, and the Second Amendment. And I know that in the American psyche, in this fabric, um, that's not really going to work. So as much as I dislike the NRA and these kinds of things, uh, it's not an issue that I can really, um, it's not gonna be such a deciding factor in my vote because ultimately I think it's kind of like, um, um, it's not an issue that's gonna move. Uh, and so I, again, uh, I'm not trying to speak to the people who do vote Democrat, but I do understand why if they feel like, okay, well, I'm against abortion, but at the same time, like, there's really no movement on this. And if there are other issues where they feel like are, you know, and we're looking at it more from a pragmatic angle. And so I, I, I can't come out and just judge all Christians who will vote Democrat. Uh, but for me, uh, it is uh, um, a strong enough issue where uh, there is a line in the sand that is drawn for me personally. Yeah, well, I definitely appreciate that. Um, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, I, I do think if we're just talking about practical hey, if we just, you know, elect Trump or whatever, and then Trump gets another judge in, and then we get another judge in, like, and then will we overturn Roe versus Wade? I can see how that is, it's a difficult road, right? Um, that being said, I actually think there's a great hope for this, right? Meaning we saw in um, the 19th century abolition movement, right? We saw a an institution, slavery, that was well established, not just in America, but all around the world. And um, and yet we had a movement in the Second Great Awakening that really opened people's eyes to the evil of this institution. And mm. so and and you have people like William Wilberforce, right, who yeah. was who's introducing legislation to ban the slave trade year after year after year, and he saw so much failure. Um, but eventually they started to really move the nation. And so I I think all things are possible. I think if we have a, a, a major move of God, a great awakening, I think we can absolutely move the nation on this. And um, to be honest, I think we even have a very good shot of doing this prior to some type of great awakening. Meaning, um, look, I'm if Trump had appointed, I think Kavanaugh was a mistake. Okay, if he had appointed somebody who's strongly pro-life, if he had appointed Barrett. And another very strongly pro-life person, mm -hmm. that might have been enough to overturn Roe versus Wade right there. Yeah. And and uh -huh. I I didn't want Kavanaugh when I was I was like I think Kavanaugh sounds like a mistake to me sounds like and and the but understand the reason why here because there's all of these moderate Republicans who don't want you know who don't want a hardcore pro-life justice. Yeah. And my point is. If we had a united church that was like, hey, we need a hardcore pro-life justice and we're not okay with these moderate conservative picks, guys like John Roberts and stuff like this. We're not okay with this kind of stuff. 
I think we could have overturned Roe versus Wade already, right? It's precisely because of the wavering in the church on this issue that we did not have the political power to be able to push through those Supreme Court justice picks. But I feel like what's happening is the the momentum on, let's call it the far right or the evangelical right, has become so strong on abortion now where we have put that kind of pressure. Look, the reason why we elected Trump was precisely because we didn't want any more of these George Bush types, right? I'm like, I'm tired of George Bush types who say the nice things, but then they compromise. They're compromisers constantly. And I want somebody who's going to be true to his word. And that's why, in my opinion, Trump has so much support from the evangelical right. It's not because we approve of his, you know, his language and stuff like that, okay? It's because he has been true to his word. He's trying to actually push forward serious pro-life judges. And that is the most important issue by far to people like me. And so I simply say, I think it's very possible. And yes, will people still be able to get abortions if we overturn Roe versus Wade? Well, yeah, of course. Then it's going to go to the states, right? Some of states, I'm sure, will abolish it. Some states yeah. won't. It's We're still at the beginning of this battle, right? Yeah. But I see it as a real battle. And yeah. I'm more concerned about the way God feels about this. I think yes. it matters to God, right? Absolutely. I think if we overturn Roe versus Wade as a nation, I think that that will have ramifications in terms of his judgment for the nation, even if we don't fully abolish it, right? I, I look at the Civil War. Um, you know, Abraham Lincoln in his second inaugural address said very clearly that the Civil War was a judgment from the Lord for the sin of slavery. I think he's absolutely right about that. And we had this terrible judgment in our nation, and that was with partial repentance, Right, we had about half the nation repent of slavery, something like that, and we still had this great judgment. But I think it could have been way worse. I think the Civil War could have split the nation completely, permanently, and I think um, I think we were we were saved from that because of the amount of repentance for slavery that we had prior to when God gave us judgment in the form of the Civil War. So I simply say I think the same thing is true for abortion. That even if we don't accomplish complete abolition. I think even partial abolition is meaningful in in the eyes of God. Yeah, I agree with it. I think, um, you know, I experienced God's heart over this issue like many, many other charismatic Christians uh, when I first heard Lou Engel speak uh, when I was a young man. And um, I just, you know, in my head, I knew it was wrong and I believed it was wrong. But when he spoke on it, it just spoke in the light. I mean... And then when I saw him speak the next time, he talked about the same thing. And then the next time he talked about the same thing. <laughs> and uh, I, I had a moment with the Lord, like, God, what am I missing here? Like, why don't I have that heart? And so on a heart issue, I totally agree with you. I would love to see Roe v. Wade overturned, um, uh, even if it's partial. Um, I guess I was speaking on behalf of some Christians who do vote Democrat, partly because there are certain issues that are just so hard to move the needle in uh, and, 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 and so forth. But uh, yeah, I would love to see it overturned. Uh, I believe our God is a God who does impossible things uh, in human eyes. And uh, uh, as far as the abortion uh, issue goes, uh, I am uh, right there with you. Um, I do think, I guess uh, on a certain spectrum, um, I do think that uh, we need to continue to have a little bit more of a diversified approach in terms of um, uh, dealing with this issue, especially even in the church. 
because, um, you know, obviously legislatively is one, one sense, but in a grassroots level, um, you know, over the years, you know, I've dealt with youth, uh, college students who got pregnant, uh, and uh, every single time I um, encourage them to have the child. Uh, most of the times I failed, but sometimes I succeeded uh, by the grace of God. Uh, and uh, I think uh, we, we need to talk about sex and promiscuity uh, within the church because it, it's such an issue. Abortion is a secret sin in the church because people know they're not supposed to have sex before marriage, but they do. And then they get pregnant. And for them to actually come to church pregnant as an unmarried woman, I mean, I can only imagine how difficult that would be, right? So I think in some ways we have to preempt that issue and let people know, hey, look, we're not going to change God's word and his standard regarding sex. But if you find yourself pregnant, like, hey, uh, we want you to know that we're going to support you and we're going to love you and we're going to absolutely uh, um, uh, help you. You know, whether you put the kid up for adoption or whether you choose to raise a child, um, you know, we're going to be there right with you but please don't compound the wrong uh because of your shame let's kill another life let's not do that you know and so um i just think that um there's also a lot of areas of focus that we need to um attend to uh in this issue uh outside of the legislative means and uh while i'm at it uh here's the other thing again i'm all for christians being politically aware certainly and and being active and all of the a lot of those things uh but there is a part of me that has some concerns especially with the way christians are kind of allying themselves with the republican party um and um uh it helps us lose discernment uh so anytime there's an issue uh, we respond to it in a knee-jerk way like the rest of our society often does. And so when you have um, something like, you know, Black Lives Matter, for sure, in Fox News, you're going to see all the looting. And in CNN, you're going to see none of that, you know? And so anytime an issue comes up, we respond to a knee-jerk. It's almost like we already um, have made all of our conclusions and facts are not going to get in the way you know, of, of our set beliefs. And I feel like a lot of Christians have been entrapped in that mindset as well. And so everything that they see is from a conservative lens and they can't see otherwise. And um, I'm not an expert by any means, but one of the areas that is a passion of mine is Christian history. And one of the trends that I've seen all throughout 2000 year Christian history is that whenever Christians uh, have allied themselves with political power, the church always became corrupted as a result of it and i am not and i feel like there's a sense of that whole christian nationalism or this kind of idea and and how we are consistently allying ourselves with only one party where sometimes being christian and republican becomes one and the same almost and i know most christians will deny that but in the way that they view everything in the world it's like to me it's so obvious and so um that's not to say we shouldn't be active against abolishing abortion. That shouldn't. Uh, that doesn't mean that we should stand up for traditional family values and, and and male female all of these things. But I feel like we lose our prophetic voice when we start to parrot one party and ally ourselves with one party when we should be equally um, biblical in in any issue in, in in being able to discern what is of the Lord and what is really not 
or it's just American values. They're not Christian. So then, uh, and that's kind of the whole bent of what I shared about in, uh, in capitalism as well. It's like, yeah, I agree with you that more regulations and so forth is not good. Uh, but at the same time, you mentioned you got the FBI and, and CIA and, and well, those are government. And so like I kind of would use an analogy like you have the law of the land, but you need police, you know, in the land. And likewise, I think in a capitalist economy, we would be foolish to think, OK, free market economy, everyone's equal and, and they compete and this is going to be great. But like you still need pol policing to a degree because people are always going to sin. And so for me, it's like this whole capitalism, you know, socialism debate. Yeah, there's certainly discernment and Christian stuff into it. But at the end of the day, uh, neither system is Christian at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think um, there are certain issues like abortion and so forth that I think is so clear cut as far as our Christian convictions go. But I think there are also other things that are not. But then we've lumped all those things uh, into our Christian value, identity, and politics to the point where I still remember when I was a college student and George W. Bush became president, the Christian coalition, they came up with like 10 um, uh, areas of focus that they were going to push through. And top of the list was George Bush's tax cuts. And his tax cut, by the way, turned a record uh, uh, budget surplus that America had into a record deficit at the time. And his tax cut, uh, the top 1% of America received 49% of that. So almost half of it. So like, and again, people can argue like, well, they pay the most or they get, people can argue the nuances of that. But I thought to myself, why is a Christian coalition, their number one priority is a tax cut? Like there's a lot of debate that can be had there amongst erstwhile Christians in that regard. But like, so I started to see that there was a lot of syncretism going on uh, where we are mixing uh, Christian values with conservative or American values that may not necessarily be biblical. Yeah, I hear you. I think, um, I, I mean, I don't know why tax cuts would be the number one issue for a Christian organization personally, but I, I agree with that. And it's largely because of what we're, what we're talking about in terms of socialism, right? The idea is, I do believe it is a Christian agenda to limit the power of government and tax cuts are one of the main ways that we do that right we get the money out of their hands now it should be you know it should be done alongside spending cuts right the problem is it's a lot harder to you know to pass spending cuts than it is to pass tax cuts so yeah I, I, I get a part of what you're saying there but that's what I'm saying to me it's it, it's because we're fighting a worldview. And that's how I see Marxism. I see Marxism as a as a religion, right? Mm -hmm. And it has yes, it different is. has different manifestations in certain socialistic government policies. Um, I see BLM and you know the whole narrative of systemic racism as being Marxist at its core. So I see Marxism having a lot of different tentacles. And I'm fighting against all of those things because from my perspective, those things are of a different kingdom, a different spiritual kingdom. And so I understand why somebody who doesn't agree that some of those tentacles are of a different kingdom, they're like, hey, this just looks like syncretism or something like that. But that's why it makes sense from my specific worldview. Does that make sense at all? It does. Uh, but what I would say is that, well, capitalism to me is also not part of the kingdom worldview. It, it really, you know, I mean, democracy... 
has, certainly has its strengths. Uh, but I also, you know, um, we know that in the kingdom, there's a king. Uh, and I, that's and, and the perfect king. That's the best form of government, you know, um, mm -hmm. and uh, democracy is just uh, uh, one one avenue of doing things uh, in America. It has worked very well. Mm -hmm. uh, we tried to export it to Africa and it didn't work so well because I don't think they had the infrastructure to to handle it. Sure. Um, and and um, it, it's it's just one form of government, but sure. it's not like um, it's not a kingdom thing. You know, but I, I think we conflate those things, especially American Christians like democracy, capitalism. And we think these are kingdom things. And I'm saying, you know, actually, there's a lot of evil to these things as well. And so we should be very. Um, yeah, uh, I don't well, know. Let, let's let's explore a little more, because mm -hmm. the reason why I think um, Marxism and socialism are of a different kingdom is because I think they're part of a humanistic kingdom. That's how I would. I would categorize these things. And I right? would agree with you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in the humanistic kingdom, government replaces God, right? And that's why there's this constant effort to empower the government and see the government as the savior of mankind and things like that. So that's that's how I see it as being of this other kingdom. If I had to put, you know, I'm I'm when I'm talking about spiritual kingdoms, I'm generally talking about worldviews or other religions. So in Islam, for example, I see Islam as another spiritual kingdom that I'm I'm at war against. Right? I am at war because I'm fighting for Jesus to be king, for people to bow their knee and give their allegiance to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Islam is a worldview that opposes that and tries to put get try and make people put their faith in in Allah, right, or Muhammad, or the Sharia law, or however you want to categorize this, sure. humanism is is another kingdom, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. how I see it, and mm -hmm. that's where that's where socialism and a lot of these things they come from. They're tentacles of humanism, where there are these philosophies and ideologies that are replacing aspects of the kingdom with with of God with government. The government will care for you. The government will ensure equality. The government will do all of these things, will safeguard you. Now, is there a place for human government in Christianity? Well, yes, there is. Okay? So we believe there is a place for it, but when I see people advocating that government should go beyond its biblical mandate, I start to see that as the influence of another kingdom. That's that's why for me, I'm still doing this from a kingdom perspective, but I can understand why it looks like I'm becoming political or something like that well i mean um from a biblical mandate of government i think um there's really not a lot that bible says you know regarding government um but um i think again i i i don't see humanism necessarily as government becoming god i think humanism is just a system of thinking where humans uh, are ultimately in control and they're their own gods, so to speak. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of the, uh, capitalism and democracy is also very humanistic in its nature. There's nothing so, I mean, it doesn't have to be. I mean, we can be Christians who are in a capitalistic system and we understand that. But I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, those are also very systems that oftentimes are very humanistic in its core in terms of just economic prosperity, more goods, and you're happy, rich, you know, and, and just the American dream, all of these things, you know, happening. And, and so for me, it's like, um, it's uh, in, in, in kind of like, as I shared with you via email, um, when you talk about BLM, I mean, BLM up front, they tell you they're Marxists, you know, right. so there's, there's no debate about that. Uh, but I also feel like, um, you well, know, there, there's real racism. 
uh, for sure. And, and there's a history of racism in our country. And yeah. so when uh, people talk about some of these issues, I don't think they necessarily have to come from a Marxist or socialist lens at all. I think it's calling a spade a spade. Now, like how we go about addressing it can take on different lenses, including the socialist lens. But I think when we talk about social justice, when we talk about some of these things, I don't think it always has to be rooted from a Marxist lens. Can I ask you a question? Why do you think the BLM leaders are Marxist? Where do you see the overlap of Marxism and BLM? Well, well, first and foremost, they put it on their website. For sure. Yeah. So they are. Like we <laughs> yeah. both we both agree that they are. But yes. I, I feel like I see pretty clearly why their Marxist ideology manifests in Black Lives Matter. So because, my yeah. Because it's pitting people group against one another, essentially. Sure. Yeah. Sure, but it, it it it's not just tribal warfare. It's mm -hmm. also the uh, the uh, the idea that government we need to empower government to care for these mm -hmm. oppressed people groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. we're we're both agreed in 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 some of these mm -hmm. ideas of Marxism. Well, that's for me the entire narrative of systemic racism. I, I call systemic racism a myth, okay? I don't think it's based on facts or truth. I think it's a myth, and it, it, more than that, it's a Marxist narrative. And so I see any, when, when people talk about systemic racism, like, of course there's systemic racism. Now, I always differentiate that from just normal racism, okay? Mm -hmm. I think we yeah. all agree that there is normal racism. And I always say all the time, you know, like, Look, the average Korean is far more racist than the average white person that I ever met, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> I and I think those of us who are Korean, like we understand that, right? There's a lot more racism in in um minority communities in my opinion more often than than the majority community here in America, but the way systemic racism works is it's going to argue, you know, according to critical race theory that that racism, the racism of minorities towards white people is not problematic. That's not even a really evil thing. And the argument goes because these peoples don't don't have power or something like that, right? And so sure. you have to have power plus prejudice for it to be racism. And all of that is a bunch of you know political gobbledygook to basically argue and say the only racism we should hate is white on minority racism or something like that. And then now what we're going to do is we're going to train people to see that racism everywhere, right? So this is evidence of racism. This is evidence of racism. What type of racism? Well, it's only the white on minority racism. So for example, I think a great you know um, example that has come up recently is all of this Asian American racism stuff, mm -hmm. right? And we've there's this narrative floating around now that there's this 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 been this mass increase of Asian American you know anti Asian American racism and I, I don't know if your social media wall is like mine but most of the blame gets put on Trump and people like me right it's like it's Trump said you know Trump said kung um, flu. <laughs> And that China has virus. caused all of this white on Asian racism to rise. But when you watch all the videos of it, it's overwhelmingly black people, right? Committing racism against Asians. And this is the this is the hypocrisy and the lie that's constant because they don't know what to do with that, right? Well, yeah. like I've heard so many open calls rebuking, you know, and calling for repentance of white on Asian racism. I've seen almost zero calls for black for repentance from black on asian racism they never get sure, specific sure. when it's black and that's because it's part of a marxist narrative to try and create the battlefield as 
you know, white, straight male versus minorities, right? And that's the battlefield that they're trying to establish. And so the narrative is set up to propagate that tension, not all the other tensions. The reality is, from my perspective, racism is omnipresent, okay? Yes. Like, lots of people have racism, and racism affects lots of people constantly, right? Mm -hmm. But that's just one type of sin. There's so many types of sin, right? From cheating to abortion is a type of oppression. There's a million types of oppression. They're going on all the time in America, but the systemic racism narrative is really set up to to highlight only this type of oppression and say this is the type that is really important. The reason why I bring all this up, June, is because what I see, I call this thing a counterfeit justice movement because I feel like what it's doing is it's causing mass confusion in the church where the church feels like, hey, we see this justice issue with babies, right? And we're concerned about abortion. But then we also see this justice movement with minorities. And this is really important. And so that's why they're caught in the middle and they don't know what to do. They don't know who to vote for or how to do it. And to me, that's because of a mass confusion brought on by this false counterfeit justice movement. Mm -hmm. So there are points that I certainly agree with you. Actually, the thing where you say racism is omnipresent, I mean, that's actually the number one tenet of critical race theory uh, is that racism is very normal. Now, I don't subscribe to critical race theory, but I do think they make a couple of points that, that are valid and a couple of points that just kind of, I, I don't care for. Uh, but um, coming back to what you're saying, as far as systemic racism goes, um, I mean, of course, our nation has made leaps and bounds and strides and so forth, and, and no one can deny that. And um, I do agree with you that a lot of um, um, things that are said about systemic racism can be overblown, but uh, there is systemic racism. Uh, I'll give you one example. Sure. Um, you know, for for Asian American to um, uh, school. Uh, hey, you have to score so much higher. Hey, June, than sorry. White could you repeat? You repeat that your uh, internet and, went out uh -huh. a little bit. Uh, could you repeat that? You're you're skipping because your internet. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, for like an Asian. Oh, sorry. Yeah. For for an Asian American uh, to get into like med school, like uh, or or like say a prestigious law school, right. um, you need to get way higher scores than the average white person. Right. Uh, and not to mention Hispanics or, or African-Americans. Right. Uh, and uh, that's perpetuated because Asians are a very small minority in our nation. And uh, we don't have the voice that African-Americans or even Latinos do. And so they can get away with that. I, I still remember, you know, back in 1996, seven ish, you know, when Governor Pete Wilson was, you know, governor of California and he did away with um uh, affirmative action because white people thought that all these minorities are taking stuff from them and then within one year right like uc berkeley ucla some of these schools went from like 60 some percent white to like 20 percent white because asians took all those slots right? right uh and i mean when he overturned you know the affirmative action which is driven by whites not asians right i mean us in the Asian community, we knew what was coming. Like right. we knew yeah. what was going to happen to public schools here here in California, and so like these things do happen. I'm just giving you one small example, obviously, yeah. and it's not something that I get worked up over. And I really hope that whatever, like, I mean, 
racism against Asian Americans is as old as Asian American history in America, right? So from Chinese railroads to you know, Japanese internment, like these are well known. I, I, I know, like, I still remember even in my history class at Sunny Hills when I was a high school student, like there was no mention of the Chinese Exclusion Act when we were talking about immigration, which was a very obvious racist immigration law that prevented Asians from coming to America for many decades in the 20th century so that they could only get people of European descent. Like a lot of these things, honestly, a lot of Asian Americans don't even know. And so there's a lot of racism history uh, and so forth. And um, uh, I, I don't think it's it's wrong for Asian Americans. I, I hope we don't take the BLM type of narrative and that attitude. Uh, especially for Christians. Um, now, how, how things go about, I, I mean, I, I don't have a lot of uh, uh, optimism there necessarily. I think it's going to be driven by human anger. I think uh, in the scriptures, it reminds us in James chapter one uh, to be very quick uh, to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And I right. think this is uh, from a Christian lens, part of the reason why a lot of these movements um, while they may have some validity to them, um, it, essentially I can't support because it's driven by human rage and anger where you want to inflict, you know, uh, pain on the ones who you feel like have caused injustice to you. Um, but, uh, at the end of the day, again, I think it's okay for us to say stop Asian hate. Um, it, it's, you know, um, for, for so long in our history, it was so okay for people to make fun of us and get away with it, you know? So I still remember back when Shaquille O'Neal was on the LA Lakers and uh, he mocked Yao Ming in an interview and started saying Ching Chong and all this stuff. And people just laughed all through it. And I still remember that as a college student and thinking, oh, so it's okay to make fun. Like, oh my gosh, if they did that to uh, the black community, if they even did that to the Hispanic community, oh my goodness, like Shaq would have to issue a public apology and all these things. And everyone just laughed it off, you know? And growing up in the 80s here in the States, I mean, if you look at some of the most famous uh, movies of that time, right? 16 Candles and these things. And you got these Asian characters like Long Duck Dong and just the way that they kind of belittled and humiliated Asian Americans. So like, I don't have a problem speaking out against that uh, because in a sense, like I want my kids to not have to deal with some of the racism that I dealt with, especially back in the eighties. Um, but um, at the same time, as a Christian, I'm not gonna um, do the woe is me. And like, you know, like I feel very secure in my identity and and if I, you know, if people don't accept me because of that, like, I'm not going to lose sleep over it. But uh, for me to speak out against that and so forth, um, I think it's okay. I don't think it, it comes from Marxist lens at all. I think, uh, obviously, we have such a deep history of racism uh, in our nation, and there's uh, real pain. And uh, if I may add this, because... Uh, I believe this was from the Lord, Dennis. And so, I mean, people can take it for what it is. And I know, um, you know, especially Republicans, they love uh, what Ben Shapiro says. Hey, your facts facts don't care about your feelings. And, and there's a lot of validity to that. We can't argue straight out of emotion. But we also understand that we're not purely logical beings, humans, right? So it's dumb to speak just out of emotion and argue with it. But at the same time... Um, if all we do is try to do empirical facts and logic, sometimes things get, we miss out on some of the elements. And one of the things that when uh, BLM was going on and um, I called my black friend uh, just to ask him how he was processing it. And um, I sense a lot of pain 
where I think for the first time in my life, I actually envisioned myself like what it would be like for me if I grew up as a black man here in the States. That, you know, and I, I can't obviously fully understand that, but I, I, I felt like I connected with his pain. And when I took this to the Lord in prayer, one of the first things that the Lord spoke to me about was Japan. And, you know, every time the Japanese government does something that kind of denies some of their wartime atrocities, I mean, Korean people go crazy, right? The nation sure. goes crazy yeah. because there's such a um, visceral, emotional, deeply rooted reaction. And when Japanese even say stuff like, hey, I mean, we help build infrastructure in your country, so you should be thankful to us. Oh, my gosh, right? Like, Koreans sure. are going to go crazy about that. And you know, for me, growing up here in L.A. Uh, and back in 1992 when the L.A. riots happened and I saw, you know, um, so many Korean Americans uh, take the breath of that. Uh, so like $800 million in damages, 400 million Koreans were just caught in this crossfire of this white, black racial tension. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, and I saw that impact. And so when I see looting, like it I have a visceral reaction against that, you know? Um, and so when I saw what happened with the George Floyd riots and so forth, right? I mean, and, and so forth. So all that to say, I guess, um, what I was saying was, if we were to tell Koreans like, hey, relax, like, come on, like what the Japanese said there, like, it, it, you know, like it, it doesn't come from that place. And so from African-Americans who know that their ancestors uh, were savagely treated, many of them, obviously died in the slave trade and, and they were treated and dehumanized throughout their history. And look, I get it. Like the Ahmaud Arbery case, even Michael Brown, the hands up, don't shoot that movement that came like Michael Brown is the one who actually attacked the cop himself, you know? So these are very flimsy cases to actually argue for police brutality um, because of the facts of the case. And so I'm not, uh, saying that's just okay like black community has a right to do that again i think every case is nuanced the george floyd case i mean it's caught on video and it's so obvious mm -hmm. uh but but um so when the black community responds like this it doesn't come just straight out of okay let me logically look at ahmaud arbery it comes from a place of deep-rooted pain and there's a natural sure, sure. visceral reaction that happens out sure, of it sure. and yeah. so when the whole rodney king case happened in the la riots back in 92 Right. They caught this all on video. Right. These policemen, four policemen brutally beating this man up. And you know what the black community said? Because back in those days, it's not like people carry their we had phones to record anything. It's like we're so glad that this finally got recorded because we've been telling the white community for decades that this is happening in our neighborhoods. And you guys just say, no, you deny it, deny it. We're finally glad that it got caught on video. When those four policemen, of course, uh, were not convicted, then that's when the riots happened and so forth. And so I think there is, um, uh, we don't have to be supporters of BLM at all, especially as Christians, but I do think a little bit in terms of like, when we say things in, in yeah, I mean, racism, system and racism, a lot of that may um, have been repealed and so forth, but we're still kind of reaping the fruits of that, of hundreds of years of history where it doesn't just go away naturally. So I, I do think that there is a little bit of a different nuances uh, in terms of how we approach this. Uh, even as believers, uh, I'm not fully like on board with BLM, certainly, uh, but uh, I'm not also with the kind of the Ben Shapiro crowd, like, okay, there's no such thing, prove it. 
okay, shut up, you know, that kind of a thing. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. Um, let me respond to some of the stuff you said there, because I think you said a lot of a lot of good stuff. Um, so when I say that I don't believe in systemic racism, it doesn't mean that I don't believe systemic racism exists. I think you pointed out a good example of um, you something know, that affirm- never gets mentioned. Affirmative action, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. Um, Americans. Yeah. Systemic racism is real. Um, it's just not powerful. So what I usually say is I don't believe in the narrative of systemic racism or the myth of systemic racism. And that's the idea that systemic racism is the primary cause of black poverty or criminality or something like that in America, right? Um, you know, Thomas Sowell has done a lot of great research on this historically. And, um, you know, what you see is there are lots of communities that face systemic racism and, and yet do very well. And I think Asians in America are a prime example. Right. Like all of the affirmative action is not really hurting us overall as a community, even though it's hurting a lot of individual Asians. And that's precisely because um, cultural values are by far the most important barometer or reason why certain um, ethnic groups do well socioeconomically. And that's not just in America. That is all throughout history. So if you look at Jews throughout history, um, they have been, you know, racially persecuted in almost every historical context that they've been in, and they've been among the most successful almost every single time. And that's precisely because um, when you have high cultural values for, number one is family, right? You have low rates of divorce, high rates of marriage prior to childbearing. And then um, the second is education. You have high value for education. Well, those two cultural values are strongly correlated with success in almost any historical context that you put it in. And that's really the problem here today in the black community for talking about it. The blame continues to be put on this idea of systemic racism. And it's like, hey, this is why that they can't succeed. And this is why they, they're still oppressed in America today. And I'm going to argue that I think that is almost completely a lie. That's almost completely a lie. What we're dealing with is we're dealing with cultural values here. And I, my conviction here is as pastors, this is, this is what we should be talking about because we're constantly talking about the effects of sin and we're constantly calling people to repentance. And the reason why the black community is suffering so much is primarily because of sin, not other people sinning against them because of their own sin. And this is something I feel like I need to speak very boldly and strongly about precisely because it's considered so offensive and so taboo in today's culture. But this is this is close to the heart of biblical ethics and biblical morality, right? Like, when we're, t- when we're looking at the black community, they're at, they're over 75% of black children are conceived to single mothers today. Okay. That's the worst sure. it's ever been. It's gotten worse since the 1960s, right? This has not gotten better. It's gotten worse. And that's precisely b- why we see that things are so bad in the black community. And I need to point out, it's not bad amongst married blacks. Okay. Married blacks have never had a lower than 10% poverty rate. Mm-hmm. All right. It's precisely because there's so many unmarried blacks and that's why you, you like, you're asking for poverty if you have children and you're not married. Okay, that's kind of how this works economically. Now we can get into a real discussion, I think, over to what degree is that you know residual effect of historic racism. And I would argue that sure. it's it's actually very little. It's more an effect of modern day socialism, things like welfare, things like Marxism, like the narrative of systemic racism. Because what it presents is it presents uh, it presents an enemy 
The enemy is the white man. And what you see is that this type of grievance ideology is precisely what holds communities in bondage, not just here in America, but we see also in England, various underclasses, they develop these grievance ideologies where they're blaming oppressors for their socioeconomic status, and that creates a, a cycle of systemic poverty, right? Because you're never treating the actual cause. You're never treating the root cause of the criminality and the poverty, which at the end of the day is broken families in the black community. And this this is the problem because we've got serious sin issues in the black community, but as the church, we won't address them. We won't call them out and say, hey, this is what needs to be fixed. There needs to be real repentance on these issues because it always becomes a whataboutism. It always becomes, okay, we know black families are broken, but it's because of white oppression. It's because of white incarceration. It's because of all these things. But all of this is problematic. Like when you say, like, we, there's pain here. I completely understand. Yes, it is so painful to grow up without, within a broken family. It is incredibly painful when you when you're growing up without committed parents, with with fathers who have been abusive, oftentimes mothers who have been abusive. When the, these types of family situations are so painful and they leave a mark, right? You and I are pastors. We deal with inner healing stuff all the time. Most of our wounds in our life come from broken family issues in the family. And that is it's a pandemic in the black community in particular. And that's why when we look at Asians, why are Asians doing so well in America despite all the types of systemic racism that you're talking about? Well, the answer is because we have the lowest rates of divorce. We have the lowest rates of childbearing outside of marriage, all right? And I'm not saying it's because we're smarter or we're harder working, although I, don't, I, I think those probably do affect things at a minor level, but I think it's primarily because of family cultural values and ethics. and. What I'm getting at here is th this is part of the kingdom discussion. When we're talking about the brokenness in America, it's not just politics. It's very much an issue of biblical discussion, biblical morality. And this is a, a major concern to me because I see increasing parts of the church saying, hey, no, it's not about sin. And, and they get mad at me, right? If you dare suggest that black criminality or poverty is because of their own sin, now you are a racist, right? Now you are, and I'm like, Excuse me, isn't that one of the core messages of the Bible, right? Isn't this one of the core messages of the Bible that our own sin, we reap what we sow? But now that's become so politically incorrect to even suggest. I can't even have a conversation about it with most pastors because immediately it jumps into accusations of racism. And what I'm getting at is, hey, we cannot have a real discussion about systemic racism unless we're also talking about sin, Okay, like, for example, we had we had this video come out in the Democratic primaries where we had Michael Bloomberg, right? At one point, he was the front runner for, you know, the nomination. Yeah. But he got caught, you know, teaching the NYPD how to do stop and frisk. Right. And it's like, it, but here here's what he said. He said, hey, you're going to take this black youth that you suspect might have a gun on him. Right. And you are going to stop and frisk them. Right. And you're, and what are you going to do? You're going to look for drugs. Why? Because what that's going to do is it's going to create a culture of fear amongst these black adolescents where they will not bring their guns with them when they go out. And that's how we are going to protect the black community. We're going to keep them from shooting each other, 
right, by harassing them with minor drug charges, right? I think this is super unwise. I think it's racist. I think it's wrong. But do you understand the reason why they do it is because they believe all the stuff about systemic racism. They believe stuff about government and the government needs to protect people from themselves. And at the end of the day, we're not treating the root cause of the issue. This is how a lot of these racist policies get implemented in the first place. It's by government trying to do good, right? When we look at, you know, the government um, in places like Chicago um, having harsher sentencing for crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. That always gets brought up in conversations about systemic racism. But that was pushed by black politicians who were trying to clean up their own communities and neighborhoods, right? But at the end of the day, we're dealing with sin issues. And this is this is problematic for me as a church when we can't talk about sin issues anymore and about how sin is destroying communities. And that, to me, is the primary issue here. We have a, a an issue... Not just in the black community, because it's been rising in all ethnic communities since the 1960s. All right, The 1960s broke open the floodgates. Divorce has been rising in all ethnic communities in America. Sexual immorality has been rising in all ethnic communities. And wherever we see these patterns, we are going to see increased poverty, increased criminality, because people are growing up in broken families. Like, that's the issue that we need to address. And my question is, at what point do we say, hey... We need to actually call people to repentance for these things. Like, how long can we blame white people, right, for broken families in the black community? Like, it's not white people who are forcing black people to get pregnant when they're young. That's not happening, right? It's not white people who are out, you know, like, the big issue today is criminal justice reform. Like, we have these roving bands of angry white police officers who are trying to destroy black people. And it, look, in my, from my perspective, it is almost precisely the opposite, where there is intense fear in the police departments of America to police black communities, because you know that you can start a riot. You know you can be, you could say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing and get shot. You know that you can get fired, right? If you, if you, it's so it's almost precisely the opposite from my perspective, that's what I feel like they need. We need black communities where police are able to do their job because the ones who are being hurt by black criminality are, are overwhelmingly other blacks, right? We need cultural transformation in the black community, but we can't do that as long as we're dead set on a narrative that's blaming other people. I don't know. What do you think about that whole paradigm? Uh, there's a lot that you say that I agree with you. I think the Honestly, the biggest ep epidemic in America and in the church is a uh, lack of uh, fathers. Uh, and uh, I believe in the church that the biggest need is godly men. And uh, I believe that in society, the biggest need is fathers. Uh, and um, in fact, that's one of the main ministries outside of uh, JMI that I involve myself with is a ministry called Father School. Uh, and so there's a lot, lot there that is there to unpack and I, I would agree with a lot of that and i wouldn't even accuse you of being racist necessarily you know i mean just because you mentioned these kinds of things i think um uh i i do believe that there is a little bit of a um kind of dismissing of the remnants of the racism that african-americans had to take uh, when you've been enslaved for about 300 years or 200 plus years and broken down, of course, we have an advantage over African-Americans because we have the Asian, you know, ed education, work ethic, 
you know, paradigm from which our parents came from. Uh, and, and we were not like an enslaved people. So you could only imagine that even after Emancipation Proclamation and, and then Juneteenth later on, like, I mean, these people don't have anything. I, I would imagine that they didn't start teaching their kids, oh, you need to be educated because that was just not something that was within the event. And then the whole Jim Crow and all of these different things that happened with housing and, and, and even throughout the 20th century. And so I do think that uh, some of those things get dismissed a lot. Um, can, and, can I address that real quick? Because I, yeah. I hear what you're saying. <laughs> because I know this is an area where you have passion also, right? When we're looking at the Korean community, the Korean community um, it endured some horrific abuse yeah. by the Japanese in World yeah. War II. Mm-hmm. I mean, in- incredibly yeah. horrific, right? Yeah. I think you and I both understand when we're talking with an older Korean person who is bitter, we understand that pain. Like mm-hmm. we understand why that person feels that way. Mm-hmm. I don't. I think it would be totally inappropriate to be like, "Hey, just get over it." Yeah. Like, what's wrong with you? Just get over it, right? Right. Like that would be a completely inappropriate response. Mm-hmm. But if our response was, "Hey, I understand," and this was so wrong, but at the mm-hmm. end of the day, you have to forgive. If you don't forgive, you can't have freedom. I'm totally with you there. Totally. Yeah. That that's how I see. Mm-hmm. When we're dealing with the black community, it's got to be the same thing. It's not. I'm not trying to say that we need to be callous towards the mm-hmm. sins of the past. I. W- this is one of the the great things that there is not as much attempt nowadays to whitewash the sins of America's past. Okay, I think yeah. we're all on the same page. This is a horrendous evil with slavery, but if we're talking about solutions, the solution has to be forgiveness and taking ownership. And what I'm getting at here is, look. When you have people who have deep pain, unforgiveness, well, you're talking about a breeding ground for demonic influence and oppression. And a lot of people have major problems, right, with violence and rage and jealousy and all these kind of things that flow directly from their unwillingness to forgive. And that's what I'm getting at here. When we're talking about the problems in the black community, I am not talking about telling them, hey, just get over it. I'm saying, hey, Let's have compassion. Let's have empathy. Let's understand. But at the same time, we have to be firm in our call for forgiveness and taking responsibility for sin as opposed to constantly blaming past oppressors for our current issues of sin today. So, you know, I want to push back a little bit on on what you said here. Um, I don't know that necessarily it's kind of like we're in a place where like we are really listening and having compassion and and recognizing the wrongs because I think right now we have a lot of um, white fatigue against a lot of these accusations and that's understandable too. And so I honestly think that there's really hardly any listening going on, uh, hardly any um, real empathy and compassion going on from most people who would argue the whole there's no systemic racism thing. I think... Right now, we're in a country where we know we're deeply divided. And one of the things why I fear for the future of our nation is fatherlessness. And the other aspect is um, this complete lack of listening to the other, where Democrats blame Republicans. Like, if you guys didn't, didn't exist, we'd have a perfect world. And Republicans say the same thing. Like, watch any news channel where you bring two people of opposing views. There's zero listening going on. And so when I saw the... Trump and Biden debates, I thought, wow, like 
America loses. You know, this is kind of the discourse that happens in the highest place of our our nation. So, so I I don't think we're actually empathizing very well with the black community because again, the whole Rodney King LA riot was a flashpoint where the blacks were frustrated and they were claiming these things that were being denied, and then they're like, oh my gosh, we're so thankful this was caught on tape because now you can't deny, and we know that prominent like the police chief of just about any major city has to be black because there's so many decades of distrust uh mistrust and and abuse that the african-american community felt that they received through the police force so i i actually agree with you dennis that i believe the vast majority of police force is not racist i believe that they are scared now actually to police in those neighborhoods uh and uh, i believe that defunding the police is nonsense but having said all of that again i think if there were people like in the highest places and, and as a nation where we actually understand uh the anger and in that has been built up over many decades and centuries because they felt like they couldn't trust um so so you remember when the whole oj thing was happening right and uh anyone who was not african-american were appalled when they would pull african-americans and they found out that majority of them thought that he was innocent because every single evidence showed that he was guilty but then it was because you know there was a police man involved who was a noted racist we found out and then they thought oh he planted the evidence you know and that's kind of the level of it's you know it's not because they have low iqs it's because like there's such a level of um uh distrust of the police like for them that's just such a you, you know what i mean so it, it really does shape our sense of reality so to speak so i do think that there is a a lot of um pain there that is not being listened to but having said that i would agree with you on a larger level like yeah the the solution is not some kind of reparations because th that will be almost impossible to legislate and then secondly yeah you're right i mean blame shifting and, and even if it's right blame right even if you had the worst father in the world like if you're stuck on that for the rest of your life you're going to be a loser and likewise as a community yeah they do have to address things from their own level and and you mentioned forgiveness and so forth and you know i i I mentioned this to you briefly on email and so forth. And one of the things that I felt that the Lord revealed to me uh, was that um, that Japan as a nation that still has way less than 1% Christian, that they would experience a revival when Koreans and Chinese Christians learn to forgive them. And I actually carried that message. I had an opportunity to speak in Korea four different times. And, um, and uh, I, <laughs> I, I renamed my sermon uh, instead of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we know Jews absolutely hated and would have received it like that, I called it the parable of the Good Japanese. Uh, and I, the reaction of these people was not very good in the beginning of the message, but they kind of understood my point. And, um, and, and it's hard for me to confront Korean comfort women, the few who are still alive, and be like, well, you, gotta, you just got to forgive. You got to forgive. I mean, it's a right message. Uh, the content wise but how we go about it is very different and obviously if a japanese uh, pastor were to say that to them it would be taken very differently and so forth too so there's a lot of nuances to this issue obviously uh but i guess what i'm saying is that um yes facts don't care about your feelings and i think we need more of that in american discourse to be quite frank but then there are times when we have to understand um there's 
yeah, we're not just logical beings as humans. And there's a lot of areas there that um, because of our lack of listening and empathy, I feel like it's hard to come together as a society. And that's why we're seeing further and further division. And unfortunately, I believe Christians are following the ways of American society in the way that they um, are very slow to listen. They already made up all their conclusions about every issue. Uh, and they're very quick to speak, uh, and, and uh, which is, again, why I feel very strongly about not giving our allegiance to either the Democratic or Republican Party, because then you really lose your sense of um, discernment, because you start to see everything in a shade of red or shade of blue, and everything, every color looks red or blue to you. And I, I, I'm afraid that's where some Christians are, are at today. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, there's definitely um, we're definitely we have definitely have a deep division here. Okay, I think um, what I hear from you is the answers. We need more empathy and more listening. I I actually I I don't feel like that's the answer anymore, and I I respect that it could be. Okay, it could be, um, but I feel like what's happened is the whole nature of this Marxist social justice thing is it is preying on the tendency to empathy and kindness, right? It's preying on this desire that the Americans have, right? Like nobody wants to go and be like, hey, black person, it's just your sin that's causing this. And, you know, like, <laughs> just get over it. Like, I, I don't run into hardly anybody that's mm. like that, right? Yeah, of course. What, of course. what I run into is I run into tons of people who care. And they're like, I want I want to help and I want to see healing in this. And I hear and and then they're and then they listen. They are listening to all the stories, right? The problem is that um, the the media and the education system becomes so biased that they're constantly saying, if you don't agree with our narrative, it's because sure. you don't care, right? And we now have a situation where, hey, there's about ten unarmed black men shot by police every year. But you ask the average person how many unarmed black men are shot by police every year. It's usually like 500, 1,000. You know, like there is this narrative that this is a widespread, you know, constantly. Why? Because there's these stories are constantly being told, constantly over the media, social media, again and again, these stories of oppression and racism. And my, and my answer is, hey, this, this is deception. This is deception. And it's not that we like. I would say if you, if you didn't know about any of this, then I'd say yeah, you should listen to some of this. Okay, but I actually feel like the the balance yeah. is tilted so far <laughs> the other way, where everybody is listening to stories of okay. oppression, and it's it's the equivalent yeah. where you know, it's like if we're t if we're going back to the old embittered Korean man, where we're saying. Oh yeah, I understand. And yeah, those Japanese people are still oppressing you, huh? And so what we need to do is we need to, you know, we have to not hire Japanese people and we need to make sure they're only hiring Koreans or way more Koreans than Japanese. And do you know what I mean? They're all of these now formalized prescriptions and policies rather than getting to the heart of the issue, which is at the end of the day. I understand you were wronged, and that's real, and I'm not trying to minimize that. Mm -hmm. But you can be yeah. free from this. You can be free from this okay. if you will forgive and lay down the bitterness and the resentment. And guess what? That Japanese guy over there today, I promise you, he does not hate you. All right? He does not yeah. hate you. He's not trying to hurt you. Like, And your job as a believer right, is to forgive and to love him. And I know that's hard. I'm not saying it's easy, but it will bring you to freedom. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you know, no, I agree with you um, in a lot of circles. I think uh, we're raising up pansies uh, in our universities uh, where I think everyone's rushing to become the next uh, uh, victimized people. And I think it's such a, a loser mentality to take. <laughs> and I think it's, uh, uh, it's terrible, honestly. So I'm actually with you a lot in that sense. I guess what I was saying was that um, it's not that that empathy will solve the issue. Uh, again, I mean, there's some real issues to tackle, certainly in that community. Uh, I would even argue a more broken community is a Native American community, you know, but they're just not, you know, in front of us as much. But um, I guess what I'm saying is in terms of the division that we see in our society, I really do feel like uh, there's white fatigue and then it's like, and they do face reverse racism. It, it is a real thing. Uh, and, and and then, so then they kind of shut their hearts and their ears. And I really feel like there's very little empathy from those groups sure. uh, towards this community. And so then when they're like, why are they rioting and, and so forth? And believe me, I hate riots more than anyone else, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and, but one of the things that they fail to see is that, yeah, it's not just about, the logic end game here at this point you're talking about a deep rooted suffering that has manifested for centuries and you're picking at that scab and and, and so forth so again that's not gonna empathy sure. itself is not gonna address like I, real I issues you. there i think in terms of the, the, the divisiveness that we see in our society and how one side is very dismissive and the other side is just gonna cling to all kinds of victim narrative and, and then just lash out. I mean, that's what I see and I which is why I am afraid a little bit of the future of our nation and that's why I pray for our nation. Oh yeah, well yeah, well no, that I, I totally agree with. I do think we are, are becoming increasingly divided and I do think civil war is a very real possibility in our future. And I do think the answer is, yes, forgiveness, having real conversation. That's one of the purposes of this podcast is to be able to have, you know, honest, good faith conversation. Um, and I do think we, we need to see more of that. Like, it is helpful. So totally agree with yeah. you on, on, on that point, Pastor June. Well, I want to respect your time. Um, so I just want to say thanks so much for coming on and discussing all this stuff. To be honest, I'd love to have you back on. I thought that that was a great, um, you know, conversation. And I know that there's so many other things you and I could uh, potentially talk about. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. I love I love to come back. Yeah. All right, thank you.